listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I was a kid, my parents used to buy me these massive puzzles, thousands of pieces, and they would stick me in a room with that puzzle and disappear. And I realized later that this was their, their babysitter for a brief moment. And I would, I would get these puzzles, and I, and I would dump the box out on the floor, and there'd be all these pieces surrounding me, and I would begin to try and figure out how to put these puzzle pieces together. And however hopeful I may have started off, it would not be long before I was incredibly frustrated. And I was looking around at all these puzzle pieces in disbelief, that they could ever be brought together into some coherent whole. And on one of these occasions, when I was failing at putting the puzzle together, my dad came downstairs and he just sat off to the side and he observed me. And then after a while, he said, son, 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 listen, if you want to get all those pieces put together, you have to get the picture on the top of the puzzle box firmly in your mind. If you can't see the top of the puzzle box clearly, you will never succeed at getting those pieces put together in a clear way. The picture will never come into focus unless you really understand the top of the puzzle box. And then he sat down with me and he began to work on that puzzle with me. Now, as we think about our lives in this world, one of the things that we realize is that diversity is a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? It's, it's reflected in the media that we consume. And that's why every time we see ads in the paper for Target, we see a bunch of ambiguously brown people <laughs> in the ad because this company is trying to say, we, we see people who look like you. And, and if they can get someone who looks like a bunch of different people, then all the better, right? People like our children (laughs) and me, right? They reflect their value for diversity through their advertising. It's it's also the case that we also see corporations over the last couple years, they added C-suite positions to their businesses to add chief officers of diversity, equity, and inclusion because they understood that this could be meaningful for their bottom line. And then if you consider uh, conference planners and, and, and the way that they try to line up panels, we're living in a day where conference planners feel the deep need to make sure that their speaker panels reflect some kind of commitment to diversity. And Lord help them if they don't. Because then the voices come out of the woodworks, blasting them for failing to demonstrate a concern for cross-cultural love. I think it could be argued that we've never seen a more concentrated effort in the world to pursue cross-cultural diversity. We've never seen more social effort given to the goal of trying to create diversity. But here's the sad irony. When we look around at the state of our society, more often than not, what we see is a bunch of scattered puzzle pieces. And it often seems like an impossible task to see those pieces come back into one 
coherent picture. These last few years, if you've been paying attention, <laughs> have brought a growing polarization, tribalism, and racial retrenchment. We've become estranged from our neighbors who are different from us. And even within the church, we have become estranged from one another. We have what a good brother named Ed Gilbreth calls the reconciliation blues. However hopeful we may have started out in this cross-cultural journey, after years of trying and feeling like it's not really going anywhere, many of us have grown discouraged and have given up on this whole enterprise. You know, at our community happy hour this past Thursday, which many of you missed, and I hope to see you at the next one. At our community happy hour, we, we were saying, see, I, see, see, see. At our community happy hour, Joel and Ashley and I were sitting down talking, and we, we were just messing around talking, and we stumbled upon this conversation where we noticed that the old school television shows from back in the day, they were much more forthright and much more courageous and much more helpful at addressing the cultural issues of the day than our, our TV shows of today. And what we notice is that we've actually regressed in our ability to have these difficult conversations around diversity and cross-cultural love, which points out the fact that the, the, the modern myth of inevitable progress is just that. It's a myth. Time doesn't heal these issues. Progress is not inevitable. Now, here's the thing. What we recognize is that in our culture, there is this deep longing for diversity. But if you listen carefully to our neighbors, what you will hear is that our neighbors don't just want a scattered, disconnected diversity because that already exists. In their longing for diversity, what they're really after, what their heart really longs for is unity in that diversity. That's what our neighbors long for. That's what we long for. And what I would submit to you this morning is that no worldview holds out better resources or, more, or a more sure hope of seeing this unity in diversity come to pass than the Christian faith despite the fact that Christians have often failed to recognize and seize these immense resources of our tradition, and we've also often failed to live up to our own creed. What we're talking about here is the framework that actually resources and provides coherence to this longing, to this pursuit. And I don't believe that anything clarifies, empowers, and makes sense of this pursuit like the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to get into this final picture, the top of the puzzle box, as it were, for the world, according to God's vision that is given to us in Revelation 7. And I want to approach this, to this, point, uh, I want to approach this text through two points, and we're going to consider true diversity and true unity. True diversity and true unity. So let's look at our first point as we consider True diversity. Now, as we come to this text in Revelation 7, Revelation is a book that often intimidates us, right? There are lots of symbolic things going on, and we don't know about the dragons and the stars and the blood and the moon and all these things. It gets a little confusing. But never fear. This, too, is meant to be a devotional book for the people of God. 
and all you need is just a little assistance to try and see how this thing holds together. But as you come to this text, what we understand from this text is that the Apostle John has been exiled on the Isle of Patmos, as he says it, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The emperor at the time, the Roman emperor Domitian, has required citizens of the Roman Empire to confess that he is the Lord and God as the Caesar. This was a test of their loyalty as Roman citizens. They were expected to confess Caesar as Lord and Savior, Lord and God. But John identifies as a loyal citizen of the kingdom who acknowledges one Lord and God, one Lord and Savior, and his name is Jesus. And now God uses him to call the church to endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. Endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. These are the twin notes that John pastorally wants to work in to the community to whom he's writing. And wouldn't you know that the book of Revelation is profoundly wonderful for just that. Endurance and persecution and assurance of victory. But how does John actually do this? How does he accomplish giving them these two pieces? He gives them an astonishing vision of the final scene of the story of God. What did John see? Put your eyes on the text. Verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now, check it. The first thing that John saw was diversity. And we need to appreciate the fact that John could have kept this crowd in his description. He could have kept the crowd generic. He could have said, then I saw a whole bunch of folk. <laughs> then I saw a whole bunch of people. It was a gaggle of people. He could have said that. He could have kept the crowd generic. But he piles on the language to describe the incredible diversity of this throne room scene. Notice, I want you to notice, that this diversity even gets down into dialects and diverse tribal distinctions. Let me break that down. Listen, listen. In other words, he doesn't just see Nigerians. He sees Yoruba and Igbo people. He doesn't just see Kenyans. He sees the Maasai and Kamba people. He doesn't just see Chinese. He sees Tibetan and Mongolian people. He sees Arabs and Americans, Bengalis and Punjabis, Danes and Dominicans, Jews and Japanese, Persians and Portuguese, Scottish and Somali, Peruvians and Polynesians. This is true diversity because it encompasses every people group on the planet. John saw the true diversity, and so must we. So must we. And we have to repent, because often in our lives, there are different people groups that have become invisible to us. You know, people don't become visible until they are in your heart and on your heart. That's when you see them. That's when you take account of the things that are happening in their lives. That's when you have a mind to bear their burdens. That's when you begin to pray for them. That's when you draw near to them. That's when you begin to study them so that you can better adapt to them and build relationships with them. God loves 
the diversity of all that he has made. And we must love what God loves and think his thoughts after him. Old school theologians have taught us. And I wanna, I, I, here's, an, here's an important point that we need to make right now. Because there are, there are conflicting visions of this whole diversity thing in our society today. And many of us can be taken captive by these frameworks that sound right, but they don't quite square with the Christian vision. For example, many people, they lean into this idea of colorblindness. I don't see color. Okay? Now listen. I want you to know, based upon the teaching of this text, that colorblindness, colorblindness is not a goal to shoot for. It's a problem to avoid. It is. It's a vision deficiency, plain and simple. If you wouldn't want to be colorblind in your real life right now, which would prevent you from being able to tell the difference between what's happening on the stoplight and will eventually result in a crash. If you don't want to be colorblind in this life, then don't seek to be colorblind in your social vision. See the colors. There's a reason why we moved on from black and white television sets. Seeing in color is better. Come on, somebody. All right. I got a witness in here. I got a witness in here. Listen, I don't care what color you are. You want to be seen. You want to be known. You want to be valued because bound up in that color oftentimes is a whole world of culture, a whole ethnic background. And if you tell me you don't see color, what I hear you saying is I don't see you or your culture. But Christians are supposed to be a seeing people. So if that's been your framework up to this point, don't feel shame. But hear the encouragement of the text to pursue a better way. The more excellent way is seeing. And I want us to also take a moment to appreciate. Think big picture, y'all. Sometimes in order to understand a text, you got to zoom in, zoom back out. Zoom in, zoom back out. You get context, and the text begins to get clearer to you. If you zoom out, remember this. This passage, this text, this book is given to the church on the very front end of their mission. Why? Why is this given to the early church on the front end of their mission? Because this vision is supposed to inform the way that they work out the mission. This gives, them the, this gives them a sense of what their life together should result in. This cross-cultural diversity. And honestly, unity in diversity was absolutely unheard of in the Greco-Roman world at this time. It was not a cultural vision. It was not a cultural value. It was not something that people uh, 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 tried to project as their image. No, this was insane to people in this time. And yet, the church was committed to it before the culture was. We're going to get more into that later. But as a very fine point on this, this is why we are Grace Mosaic. This mission is in our name. We center grace, which is to say God saves sinners apart from what they do, who they are, how they have succeeded or failed. It's not his taking our works into account. It's the simple grace of the Lord that caused him to move toward us. To use an illustration, you've often heard it said that salvation is like you're floating around in the water and Jesus throws you a life raft. No, that's not the image. The image is you were at 10,000 leagues under the sea. 
You were dead at the, you were a corpse at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus plunged down to the depths to recover you. He breathed into you and said, live. That's grace. But that grace is supposed to issue in a mosaic. Now, everybody, look back at that stained glass back behind you. Look back. Now look at me. Now look back. Now it's like, I'm like, that, that stained glass window, if you look at it, it's a bunch of different color pieces, different shapes, different sizes. They're all broken to some degree. They got a little rugged edge to them. But if you see how it is pulled together and held together by a unifying element, you see it's become something beautiful because all the pieces are held together by a unifying element. Grace Mosaic, we believe that it's the grace of the Lord that holds all the broken pieces of different colors, shapes, and sizes together and that we are more beautiful together than any piece is by itself. That's the vision. That's the goal. That's the heartbeat of Grace Mosaic. And what this means is that the people who are a part of that mosaic are broader than our hearts often want. The kind of people who annoy you are part of God's mosaic. The people who frustrate you are part of God's mosaic. The kind of people who scare you are a part of God's mosaic. The kind of people who exhaust you are a part of God's mosaic. The kind of people who bore you are a part of Grace Mosaic. <laughs> the kind of people who sin like you are a part of God's mosaic. Now, as they were working out this mission, as they were fulfilling this vision, the church came into many challenges and struggles in pursuit of this mission. You can read that all through the book of Acts. When they went out and they translated the gospel for every different people group, every different people group, when the gospel got in, it's the same song. It's the same melody, but through different cultures, it began to give it different renditions, different renditions of that life in Christ. And what we see is that the church had a lot of challenges when they went out, but it got even more difficult when they reached all these different people and brought them all together into one community and tried to live together in love and participate in a common mission, it got very challenging. And there were often times where they would get discouraged, right? They were at one another's throats. Even the apostles got into it, where, where, where Paul and Peter wind up at loggerheads because Peter is tripping, okay? And he says, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. You see... The Lord gives us this final picture in the midst of all the frustrations of cross-cultural community building and all the difficulties of cross-cultural mission. He gives us this picture to give us the assurance, it shall be done. It shall be done. I will bring this picture to pass. I am working on this picture. When we're tired and feel like we can't give anymore, or endure anymore. We can look at this final picture for encouragement and press on. Because here's the deal. Even when it's not working, he's working. When your plan isn't working, he's working. When your idea isn't working, he's working. When your effort isn't working, he's working. When your sacrifices aren't working, he's working. And we must also remember that this is a picture of glory. I often hear people suggest that the problem with all the diversity and cross-cultural stuff is that we talk about our differences too much. 
And if we would just stop talking about our differences, then maybe we could get on the same page. All right, can I teach you for a second? All right, here, here in the, the field of, of, of social research, that is a perspective that is known as minimization, okay? Minimization is when you are afraid of the differences and you feel like you have to squash everybody's differences down so that everyone can get on the same page. That is not intercultural competence. The goal is not minimizations, flattening down the contours of difference. The goal is that we would have the maturity and the grace to integrate and adapt without losing our own culture's best features and the healthy aspects of our own culture. We are able to integrate the beauties and blessings of other people's cultures into our own hearts and into our own lives, and it's together that we celebrate and benefit from the beauties of one another's cultures. And through those beauties and benefits of each of our cultures, we help one another to address the most ugly, dysfunctional aspects of one another's cultures. It has a sanctifying or transformative impact when we have a vision for adaptation rather than minimization, okay? And some people choose polarization, which is only focusing on the differences. We got nothing in common. Polarization and minimization do not lead to intercultural competence. Adaptation is the goal. We'll, we'll touch that a little bit more later. But I want you to see in the text that even in glory, ethnic distinctions and diversity are not erased. They are celebrated. Unity and diversity mattered enough to get a mention in glory. So it should shape our vision and our mission right now. The problem with our divisions, y'all, I want you to hear me, is not about the differences among us. It's about the depravity within us. It's sinful depravity that leads us to devalue, disregard, dehumanize, and divide. This is what allows us to accept conditions for our neighbors that we would never accept for ourselves. This is why we have identity politics in which every identity group wages social war in pursuit of power for their kind. This is why we're seeing an uptick in political violence in these power struggles. This is why our world has seen ethnic cleansing, holocaust, chattel slavery, caste systems, and staggering wealth gaps between the haves and the have-nots. It's the sinful depravity of our own hearts that leads us to choose a posture of fear, pride, suspicion, and conflict, yeah. rather than a posture of faith, humility, curiosity, and communion. No matter how hard we have tried, no matter how much money and resources our modern culture has thrown at this problem, the intellectual and social frameworks of our modern world simply cannot fit the puzzle pieces together. It can't. It can't. So, how are all of these different puzzle pieces fitted together in Revelation 7? How can this diversity be brought into unity? This brings us to our final point, true unity. Now, I want to show you how a distinctly Christian faith better accounts for the unity and diversity for which our hearts long. Okay, you with me? If you are still exploring the Christian faith out there, we are so glad you're here, and I want to make a case for you, and I want you to hear the heartbeat 
and the distinction between the way that Christians pursue this vision and distinction from the way that our culture pursues it, okay? So notice the very next thing that John witnesses in this text. He saw diversity, but what were these diverse people doing? Look at verses 9 through 10. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The next thing that John saw was a true unity in the diversity. And how was this diversity unified? Through doxology. Through doxology. Doxology, worship, is what brings it all together. It's a scene of rightly ordered worship to the Lord God. This is the core missing piece in our modern world. The modern world lacks a transcendence and moral objectivity, which leaves us to live by countless conflicting subjectivities that result in social estrangement. Can I break that down? Our culture tells each of us that we are the center of our world and that true freedom means that we all call our own shots. It's user's choice. And we're given therapeutic counsel to do what makes us feel better. And we're more concerned with figuring out what works than we are at at looking for what is true. And all of this results in distorted worship and that results in distorted lives. If you worship power... Others become competitors to defeat. If you worship money and others fall into the category of either assets or liabilities and you treat them accordingly. If you worship yourself, you will never meaningfully challenge yourself, deny yourself, decenter yourself, or make room in yourself for others. Unless it happens to suit your own image that you want to project into the world. Unless it suits your vision for self-actualization. This is how I like to imagine myself. Guess what? This is incoherent. It's incoherent with the desire for diversity, and it has disastrous results for our relationships. If everyone's doing whatever they want, you do not have a transcendent vision through which to pursue this final picture. But this is precisely where the Christian faith takes off in the race and leaves all these other worldviews in the dust, in my judgment, and in the judgment of people around the globe and through the ages. And I need to remind you of just why this scene of Christian worship can bring true unity to this diversity. Why are these different people from every walk of life crying out with one heart and with one voice? You have to see who they were seeing. Listen, listen, this is why they were crying out in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, helps us to see the picture. This is who they were seeing. Check it. Then I turned, John said, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 7 to see why this diverse group is gathered in unity around the throne. They have a center great enough to integrate the diversity. Y'all hear me? They have a center that's great enough to integrate all of the diversity. The primary reason why our culture's vision will never, ever be able to bring it to pass is because they do not have a center grand enough to integrate all of the difference. These people in this scene are laying eyes on this God and Savior, and it's overwhelming. The G-forces of his glory are heavy on them. They're overwhelmed by who he is and what he has done. And each one of them has a story to tell about what God has done in their life. Every one of them has a laundry list of sins over which Christ stamped, canceled. All of them had the testimony that they could tell the story how they made it over. You know the song we sing at Grace Mosaic, I Shall Wear a Crown. And one of the lines in that song is when we begin to get it in, is we say, I'm going to put on my robe and tell the story how I made it over. Each one of these diverse people in this throne room had a story to tell of the Lord's faithfulness. They had a story to tell of how God brought them from a mighty long way. They had a story to tell of how when they were down, he picked them up. When they were failing, he didn't lose his grip. They had a story to tell of his love, his goodness, and his persevering grace after failure, after failure, after failure, and each one of them knew that it was purely by the grace of the Lamb that they were standing in that throne room. They were celebrating. They had a reason to give the Lord thanks. And I want to tell you right now, you don't have to wait to that final scene to worship like that. Because we all have that same benefit, those of us who have trusted in Christ, those of us who call ourselves heirs of the kingdom. You have become rich through union with Christ. He has loaded your life with goodness and blessing. And it's this center that is able to hold us together. You realize that this group of people are overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord. And they just spontaneously cry out, salvation belongs to our God. Now their pain has turned to praise. That life of worry has turned to worship. Their frustrations have turned to fulfillment. Their tears have been translated into triumph, and their faith has become sight. Every single person in this diverse congregation is shouting praise to the Lamb, not whispering. Each and every cultural group, each and every ethnicity, each and every tribe and language group has found in Christ a uniquely qualified Savior in Jesus. And I want to say something right now, and I want you to hear me. One of the core distinctives of the Christian faith is that we don't focus on diversity in order to try and achieve diversity. If you want to achieve diversity, don't focus on diversity. Focus on Jesus. 
And if you focus on Jesus and you really digest his grace, you really digest his presence in your life, you really digest his calling to bear your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow him. If you receive his call to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, focus on Christ will foster this cross-cultural diversity, and it will be unity underneath that common center. And I want to also point out something really important. I want you to think about all of the things that are not in the center of this scene binding this diverse crowd together. Partisan politics is not in the center of this scene. Neither shared hobbies, shared causes, shared national origin. None of these are centered, holding the diversity together. And not one of the members of this diverse crowd places themselves or their group in the center of that throne room. It is the lamb who sits at the center, holding it all together. It's the lamb. Jesus is called by many names in scripture. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of Man. He is the bright and morning star. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. John could have chosen any name for Jesus in this scene, but he calls him the Lamb. And you know what that means? It is only cross-centeredness that can hold the cross-cultural together. It's only cross-centeredness that can motivate and energize the cross-cultural. The cross of Jesus tells us that there is room enough in the heart of God for all peoples to bring their guilt and to receive grace, to bring their shame and to receive sonship, to bring their fears and to receive fullness from the hand of the Lord. The cross assures us that God loves the diverse people of the world, and the cross also assures us that God is committed to uniting the diverse peoples of the world. But the cross also shows us that God is able to bring it to pass. I just, I just want to ask you, is what we used to say back in the black church, I want to ask you three Baptist questions. Won't he do it? Is he able? Ain't he all right? Okay. Yes, he's able to do this. He will do it. And it's simple love, gratitude, and reverence for the redeeming love of God and Jesus that creates true unity and diversity that shapes life now. And remember his earthly ministry, y'all. Remember the earthly ministry of Jesus. When Jesus embraced the outcast, do you understand what he was doing? When Jesus embraced the outcast, he was revealing the sinfulness of the persons and systems that cast them out. And if Jesus was exposing the error and the sin of the systems and people that, that put these people out through his embrace, then redemption means that we are going to be embracing those same people and welcoming them back into the place where they always belonged in the first place, into God's community. These people, the text tells us, are wearing white robes and waving palm branches, which was the sign of victory. And I want you to realize 
that this right here tells us that God has a word for those who are on the margins. Because you can't imagine what it meant to the first century church that lived on the margins to hear the word, we have the victory through our Lord Jesus. Life might be rough right now, but we have the victory. My life might be squeezing me right now, but we have the victory. The world, the flesh, and the devil might be mitigating against my flourishing, but I have the victory through Jesus. This was their confidence. The Lord has a word for the weary and the marginalized. And at the end of the day in this text, you have diversity plus doxology, and it's what I would call doxological diversity. That is our distinction from the way in which our non-Christian neighbors and our culture pursues this outlook. We pursue it from the position of doxological diversity, which is to say we do it for the glory of God. And as it begins to develop among us, God is further glorified. It's a glory cycle. We go out in his name for his glory. We go across the street, across the world, across cultures for his glory. And as we begin to bind ourselves in love to other people, God is glorified. When you do this with people who don't share your faith or your commitments or your culture, God is glorified. You know that people agreeing with you is not a prerequisite for you loving them. The Lord did not say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as they agree with you. That's not what he said. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He did not qualify that. They don't need to believe what you believe. They don't need to share your culture. They don't need to share your assumptions. They, frankly, don't need to even make you comfortable. You know you can embrace the discomfort of love across those lines of difference. The Lord, we'll see at the past, share worship of Christ is what brings this diversity into unity. We, listen, we can't think our way into this final picture. No. We can't spend our way into this final picture. We can't educate our way into this final picture. But I think what the text is saying is that we can worship our way into it. And when your worship is rightly ordered, when the Lord who alone deserves your worship is the object of your greatest affections and your highest longings and hopes, all of this stuff around the cross-cultural begins to take its proper shape. Because when you come into the presence of this God, you find repentance. We all need repentance, self-included. For a whole host of failures and flaws and sins and breakdowns, <laughs> our failures on this front, like I said last week, are no fault in the Lord. Our failures to live up to the vision he's given us is no fault of his. It's actually his glory because it lets you know if he continues to love broke down Christians like us, he can love someone like you with all the things you got going on. We welcome you into this love. We're desperate for it. We're not Christians because we are superior. We're Christians because we have been found by a superior love. So, I want to say one, one, a few, few, well, a few more things. <laughs> Don't let me lie in the pulpit, y'all. <laughs> I want to say this. We live into this final scene not because we're trying to be politically correct or acceptable in our age. Okay? That's not why we do this. We do it for the glory of God. Now check it out. Politicians will only commit to diversity so long as it's useful for getting votes and staying in office. Okay? They've shown us that. Corporations will only commit to diversity so long as it boosts the bottom line. And when it's no longer profitable, they'll give it up. And if you kind of pay attention, all those 
chief officers of diversity, equity, and inclusion that these corporations started hiring when they didn't need to do it anymore for the bottom line? They started firing people. They'll do it so long as it's beneficial for the bottom line. But the church will be committed to unity and diversity long after the culture has given it up because we're in it for the glory of God. But we could even say, even though we say we're not doing it for the purpose of being politically correct, we do say that it does follow from our true politic. Jesus is Lord. That is a political statement. Jesus is Lord. And it's that primary politic that leads us into this life. So as application, what, what do you take away from this? First, I want to encourage you, ask yourself, what or who do I worship? Not, not when you're grading yourself on a curve. Not when you're giving yourself a blue ribbon for participation. What or who do you really worship? Be honest and then ask another question. Can the object of my worship deliver on true diversity? Next, I want to encourage you. Embrace a better ethic. Embrace a better ethic. People always hold out tolerance as the great virtue of our culture. And I want you to understand something. You can tolerate somebody while you look down your nose at them, while you think you're better than them. You can tolerate someone while you despise them in your heart. Tolerance is a weak, a weak thing. Tolerance is not the virtue of the Christian life. Love is. And guess what? You can love someone while they annoy you. You can love someone while they drive you a little bit out of your mind. You can love somebody who just grates you. Love does not need agreement or affinity in order for it to be given, okay? Love doesn't, doesn't find any barriers. Next, Christians. Christians, embrace a better ecclesiology. You need a better understanding of what the church is. We are God's beloved missionary community. Do you know who you are? We are the cross-cultural beloved bride of the Lord Jesus, the apple of his eye, the, his treasured possession. And you won't be able to extend cross-cultural love until you know redeeming love. And that's exactly what we have the church is also supposed to be an anticipation of glory. That's our assignment. People are supposed to get a foretaste of the life to come through our life together. And that is our most profound witness to our neighbors. Many of our neighbors look at our individual lives and our life together, and they can't find any compelling reasons to want to be apart, frankly. But what if they discovered more of their own value because the church affirmed their immense worth as image bearers? What if they looked at the church and saw true justice in action? A church willing to intervene on behalf of our most marginalized neighbors who cannot repay the help. What if they witnessed a church that demonstrated both true love for diversity and true repentance when we fail to live into that picture? That just might be the kind of church that they would give a hearing. That might be the kind of church that they begin to trust a little bit. It may be the kind of church that they want to belong to. It might be the church that they join simply because that would be the kind of church that demonstrated the goodness, the love, and the service of Jesus. We, in our ecclesiology, have to remember God does not zap and microwave the world into the likeness that he wants. No, he uses means 
We have the means of grace. It's the vehicles by which God imparts his grace to us. Well, guess what? When it comes to this final picture on the top of the puzzle box, we, the church, are God's means. That means that you can't say, oh, someone else will get to it. Oh, no. Well, you know, they're into that cross-cultural stuff. That's cool. I like that they have that as a hobby. I want you to understand something. Cross-cultural is not a hobby. It is so central to life in the kingdom. It is central to our understanding of the gospel. How can I say that? Because the gospel is all about enemies being made friends. It's all about those far off being brought near. It's all about one new man, one new body, one new family. Jesus prayed for it in John 17 that we would be one. And he said, it's in your oneness, it's in your unity and diversity that people will come to know who I am through your love. That's the calling, better ecclesiology. Our neighbors are not competitors or enemies, nor are they our adversaries. They are our mission. Those whom we are to welcome and love, bless in generosity, encourage in sincerity, and serve with integrity, and also evangelize in faith. The grace and love of God are not a zero-sum game where more for us is less for them, and more for them is less for us. God never runs into supply chain issues when it comes to his grace. Grace is the number one export of heaven, and it should be the number one export of the church. So let us pray that polarization and minimization would give way to adaptation through gospelization. Y'all ain't hear that. that. Let me say that again. Let us pray that polarization and minimization would give way to adaptation through gospelization. Amen? Let's pray. Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at Grace